I want to draw your attention this morning to Isaiah chapter 11. Would you please locate Isaiah 11? It's located in the the first half of the Christian Bible. This December, we have been spending time in Isaiah. We've called it Christmas in Isaiah, Advent in Isaiah. Isaiah, who wrote this book, is a Jewish prophet who had the unenviable task of bringing bad news to a people that he loved. He had to announce warnings of judgment to his homeland. But in the middle of the dark messages of impending judgment came bright rays of dawning hope. People who walked in darkness, Isaiah foresaw, will see a great light. And just what is the bright light in the deep darkness? Well, for many people, the news of pregnancy or a coming birth can bring joy. It can bring anxiety as well, but it can bring joy. A baby is on the way. Well, that's what happens in Isaiah. Isaiah announces the news of a coming birth several times. And just as the anticipation of Christmas builds as you get closer, with each birth announcement in Isaiah, the anticipation grows. Who will this child be? When will this child come? This promised child will brighten the lives of all. Well, hurry up and get here is the longing in Isaiah. So to people living in the darkness of political oppression before an ancient nation called Assyria, to people in darkness because they've been sold out by their own king named Ahaz who failed them. And most of all, to people like you and I who are living in darknesses because of their own sinful choices, to those people in darkness, a promised baby boy is coming. The promises of Christmas in Isaiah and the promise of that first Christmas to Joseph and Mary and the wise men and the shepherds, that promise came to people living in darkness. Christmas is good news for those people who see themselves in darkness. Darkness is ended. Sinners befriended. Where in the stable Jesus is born. Well, we looked at the birth announcements from Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 And today we'll look at Isaiah 11. All three of these passages are linked by common expectations. All three of them illumine the meaning of Christmas and the message. And they're often called the Emmanuel Trilogy. Well, this morning we'll come, as I said, to the third birth announcement. But let's review the previous two so we'll see how these hold together. In Isaiah 7, God promised a supernatural sign. And when King Ahaz had relied on his own plans to face the Assyrians, when King Ahaz refused to trust God, the Lord bypassed Ahaz and sent the house of David a sign. And what a sign it was. It was indeed as high as heaven and as deep as the dead. What was the sign? God gave a birth announcement as a supernatural sign. Behold, he said, the virgin will conceive and that son's name will be Emmanuel. God with us. Now, that name Emmanuel means three things. It means this son would be human while his conception would be supernatural. Behold, the virgin conceives his birth would be normal. This son would be fully human. Second, Emmanuel, that God with us means as remarkable as it sounds, that this son would be fully God because God is with us. The Lord told Ahaz to ask for a sign, an impossible sign. And when Ahaz hid behind his, his, his arrogance with doubt, we often shield our unbelieving arrogance with, I'm just not sure, baloney, baloney. When arrogantly he refused to command, the Lord gives him a sign that supernatural sign. And one of the things that meant is this baby is not only fully human, but also fully God. He will be God with us. And when you put those two together, that this baby is fully human and fully God, it means that you can't be indifferent and neutral towards whoever this baby is. Because if this baby really is God in the flesh, then the only response is to worship him. In the weakness of a baby, God had come to earth. And if that's true, It will start to change your life. Now, Isaiah 9 moved on from the miraculous conception to the miraculous character of this baby boy. Then in Isaiah 9, Isaiah tells us, as we've heard referenced in many of our prayers this morning already, 
he tells us this baby will be known by four magnificent titles. The wonder of a counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the father of eternity and the prince of peace. And all of these titles reinforce the infant's essential equality with God. But they're all attributes and titles for God himself. And this Isaiah tells us this baby boy, this God in the flesh would come not only for ancient Israel, but he would come, Isaiah 9, to be a light for the Galilee of the Gentiles. What that means is this baby would be a light for the nations, a light for all those people walking in darkness. You remember the old children's song? It captures this Galilee of the Gentiles, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. This little baby had come for the Gentiles in darkness, all the children of the world. And within Isaiah, then, the anticipation grows. One birth announcement tells us of this supernatural conception of the God who is with us. Another told us about the supernatural character of this God who is with us. And today we come to see that this Emmanuel is also the king. And not only the king of the Jews, not only the king of the Assyrians, but the king of the nations of the world. And we'll see that this announcement in Isaiah 11 is just as jarring as the ones that come before it. The nation of Assyria is on its rise as the next superpower, and Isaiah sees its fall, as God tells him. As the kingdom of Judah and Israel are about to go under foreign domination, as both kingdoms rise and fall, comes the promise of a worldwide king to whom the nations of the world will come. I want you to know this morning and think this morning that Isaiah 11 is not only about Christmas, but when we're done, I hope that we realize that Isaiah 11, 1 to 10 is a text for worldwide global missions and is a call for everybody in this reason room to consider, should I go to the nations? That's the thrust of Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. Because as we say in December, reflecting a text like this, missions is the purpose of the incarnation. Now, this Christmas announcement runs from 1033. It's longer than that. But for our point, 1033 to chapter 11, verse 10. We're going to read a few verses at a time, just like you get a birth announcement and you slowly read line by line. And when you're done, you're supposed to say, great day, that baby's coming. Now, maybe you don't say great day, but you're supposed to be amazed. So I hope that happens as we go through here and look at this. Let, we're going to read 1033 through 11.1 in a moment. But I want to give you the five thoughts to hang your hat on. Railroad track so you can know where are we on this text? Where are we in this message? I want us to think first of the humble beginnings of the king. Then we'll think of the heritage of the king. Then we'll think of the empowerment of the king, the reign of the king, and the signal flag of the king. The humble beginnings, then we'll think of his heritage, then we'll think of his empowerment, then we'll think of his reign, and then we'll think of the signal flag of the king. Now, accompanying those five truths about this coming king, Isaiah is going to use two main images. And if you like to draw, you have lots of things to draw this morning. And if you draw, I'd love to see what you draw. Isaiah uses two images, two images, a tree and a signal flag. Isaiah uses the image of a tree and its components, the roots, branches, the shoots. And then he uses a signal flag, a banner, to illustrate those five things about this king. So a tree and a signal flag as we look at these five truths about this king that Isaiah sees as coming under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's note first the humble beginnings of this coming king. Let's read Isaiah 10, 33 and 34 to see the humble beginnings of the king. And as we read, look for the image of a tree. Behold, this is what the Holy Scripture says. The Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what is the image and to whom is Isaiah referring? 
Well, the image is easy enough. If you stop and think about it, talk of lopping bows and, and something hewn down and, and, and cutting down thickets of the forest reveals the image of trees being felled. So here's the image of a felled tree. Now, to whom does this image refer? Well, remember at this time in history, in these opening chapters, Isaiah is keenly aware, along with King Ahaz and Israel to the north, of the ascendancy of the Assyrians on the world stage. They pose a great threat to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But rather than trust the Lord... Ahaz pays bully money to the Assyrians so they won't beat him up. If you can't beat them, I'll join them, Ahaz reasons. But from chapter 7, the Holy One of Israel, the one high and lifted up, Isaiah 6, over the nations of the world, has predicted the downfall of the Assyrians. Now, at one level, God has raised the Assyrians over his head like a woodsman's axe. And he's going to cut down the kingdom of Judah and Israel for their dry rot of unfaithfulness. The point is, Assyria is not sovereign. God is. And no nation of the world or ruler today is sovereign either. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was before Pilate, a representative of mighty Rome, looked that man in the eye and said to him, You, sir, would have no power at all except it was granted to you from my Father in heaven. And that's what's happening here. God granted power to Assyria to discipline his people for unfaithfulness. The text says in Isaiah 10 that God had employed Assyria as the rod of his anger. He had taken Assyria. God wielded Assyria like a sharp axe to chop back Israel to a bald stump. But the heart of Assyria, we're told, grew arrogant, chapter 10. A boastful look filled their eyes. According to Isaiah 10, 13, because they were used by God, they thought they were immune from God and his judgment. Listen to how they reasoned. They traced all of their success back to themselves. Quote, Isaiah 10, 13. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on the thrones. Now, for that kind of arrogance, to use the words of an old Johnny Cash song, God is going to cut them down. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Friends, beware. Just because God uses you, just because God uses any one of us, does not mean that you are right with God. Just because the Lord uses an organization or an advocacy group, or some agency, or some Facebook group to expose some wrong and bring it to justice doesn't mean that person or group is right with God. That's one lesson from the Assyrians. You can be used by God and not be right with Him. The Assyrians thought because they were used of God, they were immune from God's judgment. Indeed, they were greater than God. But now as chapter 10 closes... God says, I used you to cut my people down to a stump. And now, Assyria, I'm going to cut you down to a stump for your arrogance and your sin. So Isaiah is foreseeing a day when both God's people and Assyria, who once stood like towering trees, will be cut back to a stump. So as chapter 10 closes... It would be like visiting a Christmas farm after January. There's nothing but stumps left everywhere. You see, as the darkness of chapter 8 preceded the light of chapter 9, the bare stumps, the charred remains of trees in chapter chapter 10 precede the growth that comes in chapter 11. This, then, is the humble beginnings of a king. And now we're ready as chapter 11 opens. Notice what's about to happen 
next to this cut back to a bare, bald stump of Israel and Judah. In contrast to that, verse 1 of chapter 11, this is what God's word says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now you put 1033 and 34 together with chapter 1, uh, I mean 11.1, and what you have, verse 1, can I put it this way in light of the season? Verse 1 is a stuffed stocking full of grace. Israel, once a towering tree hacked back to a stump in God's judgment, is about to grow again. From a stump, God will start again. Do you remember Isaiah's son, whom he introduced to King Ahaz in chapter 7? His name is hard for us to pronounce, but it means a remnant will return. Now, the fact that there was only a remnant from this towering nation and tree means that a forest fire of judgment would burn through God's kingdom and reduce everything to charred stumps. And yet, the fact that a remnant returns means not all would be lost. God would keep his promises to preserve his people. A remnant shall return and return they will for the Lord of hosts has spoken. So as chapter 11 opens, this theme, this motif introduced back in Isaiah 7 of a severely judged but returning remnant, that theme now reappears in the image of a towering tree cut back to a barely above ground stump. But now from that stump, From the side of it, this itty bitty sprig goes, a tiny little shoot shoots forth around this stump. And this is the humble beginnings of a king. From that little shoot, that little branch, the nations of the world will worship. That's the humble beginnings. He doesn't come from a mighty redwood. This king will come from a hacked back stump. Now from the humble beginnings, We'll start to see now the heritage, our second point, the heritage of this king. We'll see three things in verse 1 about the heritage of this king. We'll see his unusual nature of his heritage, the universal nature, and the unique nature. Unusual, universal, and unique. First, the unusual nature of this king and his heritage. Would you look, you're in Isaiah 11, look at the top and tail, how this opens and closes. Isaiah 1 and 10 frame it. Isaiah 1, you see in the text, speaks of the stump of Jesse. But now go down to verse 10. And now Isaiah is not speaking of a stump, but he's speaking of the root of Jesse. That means this whole section of verses is about a descendant of Jesse. In verse 1, Isaiah calls him a shoot from Jesse. But Isaiah 10 calls him a root from Jesse. Now that should cause some cognitive dissonance in your mind. How can a person be both a shoot and a root of Jesse? How can he come from Jesse and at the same time Jesse comes from him? And that's part of this prophecy's unusual nature. This will be an unusual king. He will come from Jesse, but you need to know Jesse came from him. And that's in keeping with the unusual identity of the infant announcements previously in Isaiah 7, 9. This is another unusual feature of an infant branch. He will be both the root and the shoot. He will come from, but also Jesse will come from him. This is no ordinary king that God allows Isaiah to see. And whomever this unusual shoot and root of Jesse is, look down in verse 10, he does something Universal. In verse 10, in the day that the root of Jesse, in that day, he will stand as a signal for the peoples or signal banner or signal flag for the peoples. And here's what will happen when that signal flag goes up the flagpole of him shall the nation seek or inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. This is an unusual king, an extraordinary king. This is a universal king to whom the nations of the world will gather and come. Now Isaiah, see, he used the image of a tree 
Now he's using the image, a still a lofty image, an image of a signal flag or a banner. So think, think of a signal on the battlefield that troops rally to in the midst of conflict. Or a signal flag over a castle that people stream to, they return back to. Well, that's what's happening here. This shoot of Jesse is going to wave like a signal banner in the field of conflict. Wave like a signal banner over a castle. And the people will see it and they will rally to it. It's a wonderful image. A signal flag lifted above the war of this world. High above the darkness of the world. That people will see it and be drawn to it as a safe haven. And notice again who comes to the king. He will be a sign for the people's the nations. This is what we saw in Isaiah 9. He will be a light for the, the Galilee of the Gentiles. You see, Isaiah is not simply seeing a provincial solution for one ethnic group in the world. He's not just a king, a savior in a sense for Israel or the Assyrians, but this will be a king for all the nations. From this view in Isaiah 11, Isaiah sees a global king, a universal king, who once lifted up like a signal flag, will draw all people to himself. Indeed, in verse 11, here's the kinds of people, here's the places they'll come from, from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and even from the coastlands of the sea, people will come. Think about that for a moment, the coastlands of the sea. We can even say the islands of the sea. Lord willing, January 8th, Jared and Lori and Carson and Brad and Kenny will get on a plane and we will fly back to the Philippines. The Philippines are made up of 7,600 islands, 200 of which are inhabited. That's nothing compared to Indonesia, which is made up of 17,000 islands. That sounds like the coastlands of the sea. And now we're told Isaiah sees a day that from the coastlands, People will see this signal banner in the sky and they will rally to it. Sometimes we sing for all the saints. You know the line from earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl stream in the countless host, praising Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's what Isaiah sees in Isaiah 11, 1 and 10. This Christmas announcement, this song of the Isaiah trilogy is a song about missions, about global worship. Here's a king, not only a king of the ages, but a king of the nations, a universal king. Isaiah 11 is all about missions. Now, this is a universal king. It's an unusual king. And I want you to see this king's heritage comes with a unique royal heritage. It's not unique to say a king has royal heritage. That's a nada. But what I want you to see is the unique royal heritage of this king. Where will this king trace back his human heritage? And we're told, verse one, this is from a stump of Jesse, a branch, a root of Jesse. Now think first of that image of a branch. Kings have all kinds of images on their shields and their flags, their coat of arms to represent their reign. On their coat of arms, on their crest, they might have in one corner a lion or, or maybe a dragon or an anchor or an axe or the like to represent their reign. Well, part of what makes up the coat of arms for this unusual universal king, on his coat of arms, on his crest seal, is a branch, a sprig, a shoot. And so like the images then on a royal coat of arms, this image of a branch becomes a symbol of a messianic king. Jeremiah will pick up on this image of a branch. Zechariah will pick up on this image of a branch. But it's a humble image of a coming king. A branch. You ever been afraid of a tiny branch? You ever looked at a shoot from a bush that you hacked down to cut it back and you see a shoot and you walk through the yard and you go, ah, a shoot. This is that humble beginning a branch. Jesse's family is nothing. Doesn't that fit the idea of a shoot? God had to send Samuel to Jesse's house to find the king. Nobody was thinking, you know where you find a king? In Jesse's house. Nobody thought that. 
He was not from a political line of kings like the Kennedys or the Bushes in the United States. He was not of the House of Windsor. Jesse's family had all the significance of a branch, of a tiny shoot. And that's the line through which God said, I want my king to come through that line of a tiny branch, an itty-bitty shoot. But this humble origin of this branch was an unusually royal one nonetheless. Why? There is only one king in Israel who was ever said to come from Jesse. That was David. King David. Great King David. And of this king in Isaiah 11, it's said that he will be a shoot. He will be a branch from the stump of Jesse. One day Isaiah says, a branch will come from the royal line of Jesse again. Now what's interesting is, why does Isaiah say a Jesse rather than a son of David? Isn't David more important uh, than the two? I mean, if you're on Jeopardy and someone says, uh, George Washington's dad, the answer would be, who cares? But if you say George Washington, you say, who was the first president of the United States? So why does Isaiah say the son of Jesse, to which Je- the Jeopardy answer would be, who really cares about who that is? I, why didn't you say son of David? Why are you talking about son of Jesse? Well, it's a way of announcing that something similar but new was about to happen. Just as the ancient kingdom of Israel first began with the son of Jesse, now as the hacked-backed kingdom starts again, it will be a son of Jesse who emerges. Do you see? Here's the picture. The kingdom is chopped back to the root, to the very beginnings. In a sense, then, David, the branch of David, was hacked off too. He was not the final king. He was not the ultimate king. And now, as the kingdom supernaturally sprouts afresh from a stump, Isaiah sees not just another king from David's line, but he sees another kind of David altogether. Someone like David, from the house of David, from from Jesse, but somebody so much better than David. It's a great promise from such a small image. God's going to give us another king. And go back to Jesse, that line of great King David. And a shoot, a branch will arise. A king better than David. Here then is a promise to them in that day. That when all hope seemed lost, when they constantly looked in the rearview mirror back to great King David in the glory days. When the people of God, in the sovereignty of God, had been cut back to a stump for their disobedience. When, when such a drastic felling of any tree of Israel should have meant death, now when death was expected, life will shoot forth again. And from this tiny shoot from Jesse, from David's line, a greater David will come. This is Isaiah's promise then, not only of darkness and light, but of a king at Christmas, an unusual king, a universal king, a king with a unique royal blood in his veins that goes back to the original messianic line of the house of Jesse. So here's the heritage of the king. Here's his humble beginning. You're telling me another king, another messianic king in the house of Jesse will come? When will he come? When will this branch shoot up again? Who will come greater than David? And they sang like we do today in their own words, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. The longing grew in their hearts. Now Isaiah moves from that humble beginning, from that heritage, to the empowerment of the king in verse 2. He keeps his birth announcement going. And here we have a sevenfold description of this king's power. Verse 2, would you look at it with me? And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is the Lord's word. This unusual king will have the spirit of the Lord resting on him. I don't know if you picked up, but did you notice? And I'm going to point it out to you. And once I say it, you go, oh, yes, I see it. You see the Trinity in this passage? We have the Lord, we have Yahweh, we have the Spirit of the Lord, and then we have the Spirit of the Lord 
resting on a promised, anointed king. Even in the Old Testament, there are evidences, windows in to the Trinitarian nature of God, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this promised king, this messianic king here in Isaiah 11, has the spirit of the Lord resting on him, anointing him. Now think for a moment of the importance of that language, rest on him. The spirit is not resting on this king because the spirit needs a break from its cross-country migration. The Spirit is resting. It's language for divine empowerment. Throughout the Old Testament, if you think, and you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you know that leaders of God's people had God's Spirit rest on them, empowering them for service and ministry. Moses, the judges, the prophets, the kings. All of the leaders, all of the kings, all of the prophets, they had their power from the Spirit who rested upon them. He rested on kings and empowered them for ministry. Where now we're told that this branch of Jesse, like those who came before, will have the spirit of the Lord resting upon him, giving him power, anointing him for his work. He will operate then in the power of Moses as Samson, as Elijah, as David, as Moses, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, unlike those before him, this spirit will rest on this king without measure or without limit. Following the recognition that the spirit is empowering this divine king comes a description of the fullness of the spirit that can be said of no other king. When we read verse 2, you look at it, you have three pairs of two describing the fullness of the spirit. Pair number one, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Pair number two, the spirit of counsel and might. Pair number three, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, you might say any two of those things about one king. But to say all six of those things about a king means this is no ordinary king that Isaiah foresees. Here is sevenfold blessing on this king. The Spirit will rest on him, and he will rest on him, giving him these seven gifts. Now, maybe it's helpful to organize them like this before we think briefly about each one. Alec Matir describes these three sets of two like this. The Spirit will rest upon him, giving him the king's ruling attributes, wisdom and understanding. His practical abilities, counsel and power, and his spiritual qualities, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. The king then is fully empowered for this universal reign. Now think about the spirit giving this king these kingly abilities. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him and will give him wisdom and understanding. He will have a capacity for right judgment in all things. And not only wisdom, but understanding, the ability to see to the heart of an issue. We might put it this way, the Spirit will empower this king with deep wisdom and penetrating discernment. In Exodus 31, we're told about a particular man named Bezalel that Moses says the Spirit of God gave Bezalel wisdom and understanding, these same words, so that he could build the tabernacle with skill and artfulness. Closer still, these two words are used in 1 Kings 3 when we're told that God gave these two very gifts of wisdom and discernment. He gave them to King Solomon. And rulers all over the world came to hear the wisdom of this Solomon. But now, Isaiah sees as the city falls, the temple of God is about to be destroyed and it will need rebuilding. And now, here he's told of a king who's coming with greater wisdom and understanding than Bezalel, who built the first temple. And if Solomon needed wisdom and understanding to rule united Israel, how much more wisdom will this king need? Will he have to rule the nations and the coastlands? At that point, it'd be enough. It'd be enough for Isaiah to say, a king's coming from the royal house of Jesse, who's going to be wise like Solomon and ruling, and will have the skill to rebuild the temple like Bezalel of old. But Isaiah is not done describing the full empowerment of this coming royal branch and king. From his kingly abilities, he now speaks of his practical abilities. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him of counsel and might. Now, again, 
Don't think of a counselor or a therapist, but think this way. Isaiah 36, 5, these two words, the ESV translates this combination of words in Isaiah 36, 5, not as counsel and might, but as, quote, strategy and power for war. So don't think of a therapist, counselor. Think of one who plans and strategizes, plans and strategizes, and then has the power to execute those plans. That was a great play you drew up, coach, but we couldn't execute it. No, no, no. This is one who has the plans and strategies and the power to execute it. He will be enabled with divine power for strategy and power to accomplish plans. Now, we've seen this combination already in Isaiah 9, where we're told that this child conceived of a virgin will be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Here's one of the linguistic thematic connections to that prophecy in Isaiah 9 to this one here. The son given, the son called the Wonderful Counselor and the Mighty God is the same king whom Isaiah is seeing the Spirit rest upon. The king in Isaiah 11 is that son in Isaiah 9. And so much counsel and might will rest on this king that Isaiah calls him by those very titles. So whoever again this son of Jesse is, he's no ordinary king. He will be full of the wisdom of Solomon, who has the ability of God himself to plan and execute those plans. And then his spiritual qualities, knowledge and the fear of the Lord will rest upon him. Now, Isaiah doesn't mean simply knowing God, knowing about God. He means knowing God as a personal friend. Do you know God personally? Do you know God relationally? That the Spirit of the Lord will rest on that one. You know, Solomon and David had some of these qualities listed here. David wrote nearly half the Psalms. What a relationship he had with the Lord. A fear of the Lord he had in his life. You know, when you and I want to stir our own devotion to the Lord, we read the Psalms. That's how deeply David knew the Lord, how much he feared the Lord, that his devotion to this day stirs our own devotion to the Lord. Indeed, God himself measures all kings after David by David and his devotion to the Lord. But while Solomon was full of wisdom, while David was full of knowledge and fear of the Lord, they both failed miserably. They came up short. And that is why a shoot will come forth, not from David, but from Jesse. This king will be from David's line, but so much better than David. Here's an unusual royal heritage with divine power that he'll rest on him in such fullness and such power that no other king could ever boast of this type of empowerment. Who is this king who has this heritage? And this king with this power comes from that, a branch, a stump? Now Isaiah speaks of the reign of this king, number four. The heritage of this king, the empowerment, and now the reign. I want us to see two aspects of the king's reign in verses three down through verse nine. We're going to see the true nature of his reign and the transforming nature of his reign. A true and transforming reign. First, I want you to see the true and just nature of this coming king's reign. Would you look at it with me in verses 3 to 5? Isaiah speaks. He just said, this king, this king on him will rest, delight and fear of the Lord. And now he runs with that theme in verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what he hears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Our world today has a fine-tuned sense of justice. We have slow-mo replay for our sports and multiple camera angles. We have body cameras on police to capture everybody's move. We have closed-circuit TVs. And if anything's left out, we have our own phones to capture whatever thing, real or unreal, we see. We demand a kind of justice, I'm afraid, to such a degree 
that none of us could survive should the tables be turned on us. And in a society with such a sense of justice now, here comes a king who wears righteousness and justice and faithfulness as the belt around his robe. When I lived in Texas as a high schooler and went at the time, I don't think it is anymore, one of the biggest high schools in the state of Texas, you could judge people. They wanted you to judge them by the size of their belt buckle. The bigger it was, the shinier it was, the more impressive they were. This belt buckle led to a big man. Well, can I put it this way, not being irreverent? On the belt of this king is a giant belt buckle that says righteousness and faithfulness. There is no king like this one. None. In our world, we swerve to one extreme or the other while pursuing justice. We either, as Proverbs says, we either acquit the guilty or we condemn the righteous on our way to alleged justice. But now these verses promise a king who will never acquit the guilty and will never condemn the righteous. He cannot be bought. He cannot be bribed. He cannot be bullied. On the one hand, he will judge the poor with righteousness. And he will also strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will kill the wicked. The coming of this king, the birth of this infant is not good news for everybody. Part of what makes him so praiseworthy is that he will not be a respecter of persons. He will not be bribed. His personality will not cloud his judgment. No lobbyist can sway him. And global peer pressure from the United Nations or anybody else will have nothing to affect his judgment at all. He will judge with righteousness and faithfulness. And we say, oh, for such a king. Come back, Jesus, really before our next political election. We need a righteous and faithful king who will not acquit the guilty. And you see, the longing is still here. Where is this king? When will he come already, Isaiah? His judgment, though, will have a supernatural quality. Here's where it is. Look again at the end of verse 3. He will not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Now, in one sense, that's all a judge has. His or her ability to see and hear the evidence. But the best of judges can be fooled by outward appearances. What the judge sees or what the judge hears. And that's why you have, I'm appealing that judge's decision all the way up to the Supreme Court. But not this judge. We're told this judge will not finally judge by what he sees or what he hears. He will have an ability that no human king possesses. And what is that? Look at the beginning of verse 3. His delight as a judge shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, let me tell you what I think this means and explain it. There's a double-edged meaning to this. I think Isaiah means something like, I'm going to tell you and then try to explain it. Not only does this king have the spirit of the Lord and the fear of the Lord resting on, not only does this king delight in the fear of the Lord, but here's how I'm going to put it, how this word can be translated. He can smell the fear of the Lord in other people. And that's why he doesn't finally judge by what he hears or sees. This king will have a supernatural ability to sense the fear of the Lord in people and judge accordingly. So instead of judging by outward things, what you can see and hear, this king will have the supernatural ability to smell in people the fear of the Lord. Now, let me try to explain it. It sounds kind of funny. I know it sounds kind of funny. But we even have this expression. You walk into a situation and you walk back and you say, ah, something didn't smell right about that. Well, here's a king who can smell everything and right in your life. The word delight can be translated as smell. He smells the fear of the Lord. Maybe like a can smell your invisible scent as it tracks you down. Well, why delightful? Well, a smell can be delightful or disgusting. You walk into the kitchen, when someone's making Christmas cookies and they're baking, you might say, that is delightful. Now, you didn't use the word smell, but everybody knows that's what you're referring to. 
Or maybe your shift is to take out the trash to the back of the restaurant. Or you've been on the construction crew and assigned to take this load to the dump. And when you get there, you say, that's disgusting. It's messed up. You didn't use the word smell, but everybody knows that's what you're referring to. Well, this phrase then, he will delight in the fear of the Lord, has this two-sided meaning. On the one hand, this king delights in the fear of the Lord himself, but he delights so much that he can smell or sense that quality in others. This king, as the word can be translated, this king has the ability to smell what resides deep within the human heart. And when he smells the fear of the Lord in a life, like a bloodhound smells an invisible scent, it will be a delight to him and he will judge accordingly. Now think about that. Think about that. If the Lord were walking by your life today, you ever, you ever gone through an airport screening line and they're doing a security dog and the guard walks in, don't go fast, don't go, I told you to, I told you to, and you step forward and the dog goes, shh, 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 shh. Well, 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 what if this sovereign king was walking by your life? Would he smell the fear of the Lord in your life? What scent would be coming from the aroma of your life and your heart. We know, and he won't be fooled. Ahaz sounded so pious, didn't he? Like many of us, you know, far be it for me to ask the Lord to do that or test the Lord. I mean, and the Lord of hosts said, there's no fear of the Lord in your life. He can smell the fake in our lives too. But on the other hand, the Lord knows the disposition of your heart like no one else. The Lord knows those who fear him and he will treat them accordingly. Those who trust in the Lord will never, ever be put to shame. He delights in the fear of the Lord. He senses in your life and judges accordingly. That's the true and just reign of this coming king. Nothing will get by him. No wicked person will get by and those who are truly righteous will be vindicated as so in Christ. But this is not only a true reign, it's a transformative reign. Would you look at the effect of this king's reign over every part of creation? Verses 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb when this king reigns and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf, the lion lying with a fatted calf, that says dinner time, not, not when this king reigns. And a little child shall lead all of them. The cow and the bear shall graze, understood together. The young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And as for our children, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall, be, shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is God's word. What a transformative picture of the nature of the king's reign. So thorough that it touches every aspect. The poets tell us that nature once read in tooth and claw. Now Isaiah tells us will be restored to its peace. Before the fall, paradise having been lost will be paradise regained. And aren't we told in Romans that ever since the fall, the creation itself groans to be released from the effects of the fall? Well, here comes the promise of a king who will make all things new. The curse will be undone, a disordered ecology reversed, the animal kingdom restored and all relationships reconciled among men and animals for the child will play at the den of the viper and fear no venomous death. In Messiah's reign, writes the commentator Oswald, all the fear, so insecurity and danger and evil will be removed, not only for the individual, but for the whole world. Both heaven and nature will sing. All will repeat the sounding joy that the Lord reigns with truth and grace, that he's come to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. You've seen one of those fixer-upper shows or some reality show presenting the before picture and the after picture. At the shows and everybody's in awe at the change. The after looks like, but nothing like what you saw before. Well, Isaiah is showing us an after picture 
of this king's reign. It will be Eden restored, paradise regained. And somehow, having been lost, it will be better than it ever was before. And it will be said, and this is because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And then, and then we're told Isaiah now returns to the tonic tone of this song to where he begins. Now we're in Isaiah 10 for point number five, the signal nations. He returns to tonic. This branch, this king, will truly be the prince of peace who makes all things new, of whom heaven and nature sing in verse 10. He will now be a signal flag for the nations standing in for all the peoples. King of the ages, almighty God, perfect love, ever just and true, who will not fear you and bring you praise? All the nations will come to you. Let us go quickly now to the manger. We ask, when will this king come and who is he? We go to the manger and there come the shepherds. Do you remember the news that was brought to them? We have a hymn that captures the biblical data and links what was told to them back to this king coming in the line of Jesse in the line of David. While shepherds watched their flocks by night, all seated on the ground, and the angel of the Lord came down, and the glory shone around. Fear not, said he, for mighty dread had seized their troubled minds, but glad tidings of great joy I bring to you and all mankind. To you in David's town, this day is born in David's line a Savior who's Christ the Lord, and this shall be the sign. The heavenly babe there you shall find to human view displayed, all simply wrapped in swaddling clothes and in a manger laid. And what's the response? All glory be to God on high and on earth be peace to those on whom his favor rests. Goodwill shall never cease. This infant Jesus is that king in Jesse's line. There's Mary in the manger, too. She'd been told by an angel in keeping with Isaiah 7 that she would conceive in her womb and bear a son and call his name Jesus. The angel keeps telling Mary, your son will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob and his kingdom. There will be no end. Well, there's the mystery of this king being from Jesse, but Jesse being from him. He's the root of Jesse. This is the son of the Most High, and all things come from him. But he's the branch of Jesse, for he will reign from the house of David forever. This baby Jesus is that king of Isaiah 11. And then years go by, and the Lord Jesus grows up. And in his ministry to start, he's baptized. And when he's baptized, you hear the voice of the Lord speaking. The heavens are open. The spirit of the Lord descends and rests on him. And so Isaiah 11.2 is fulfilled. The trinity of Isaiah 11.2 appears that Jesus of Nazareth is a better Moses, a better Elijah, and a better David as the spirit of the Lord rests on him. And this is a quick aside, but a good one. Nazareth even sounds like the Hebrew word Natser, branch. Matthew even says in Matthew 2.23, he shall be called a Nazarene, a Natser, a branch to fulfill what was said of him. This baby Natser, this branch in Mary's arms, is that king from Isaiah 11. And the spirit who rested on Jesus, the branch of Jesse at his baptism, empowered him for his entire life. Jesus even stood up in the synagogue and he read from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach. And on this day, this scripture is fulfilled. His baptism, his preaching, all empowered by the spirit of the Lord who rested on him just as Isaiah saw. And it all climaxes with his death and resurrection. For the writer of Hebrews tells us, For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself up to God as a perfect sacrifice. And Paul tells us in Romans 8.11, the spirit shared in the resurrection, the spirit raised him from the dead. Thus, this infant foretold, this infant that Mary holds, is indeed David's son, yet David's Lord. Fully man, fully God, as Isaiah and the angels foretold. This adult son of Jesus, 
the Netzer of Nazareth, the spirit of the Lord rested on him and his baptism empowered him for ministry and his death and his resurrection. Here's the point that this Jesus is that spirit anointed king of Isaiah 11. And then as the Bible ends, the last book of the Bible begins and ends by quoting Isaiah 11, 1 and 10. Revelation 5 opens and John hears the worship of heaven. And this is what John is told. Weep no more. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. We could say it this way. Oh boy, he's all grown up now. And he's kicked everybody's tail. You know what I mean? Sorry. I mean, he beat everybody up. He's conquered. This root is a big man now. The God man. And he has conquered. And then as Revelation ends... The entire Bible ends and somebody speaks. And in the last chapter of the Bible, somebody wants you to know about Isaiah 11 again. Revelation 22, 16. Somebody stands up to speak. And here's what we're told. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David. And the next verse, the spirit. And the bride say, come. And come, come, come. This Jesus is that lowly branch who's grown to be a king. And he calls you to make him your king. Now, I got one more point. Hang on. Hang on. Did you know that Paul uses this passage in Isaiah as a call and summons to missions? We read this text. Nick led us through it in Romans 15. Paul says that God has promised that one day Gentiles, that's you, I don't, I don't think anybody in, I don't know, I don't think anybody in here is 100% Jewish ethnicity. So that means everybody in here was for this promise. One day the Gentiles will glorify God for his mercy. And then Paul says, I'm going to prove it to you by listing several Old Testament promises that demonstrate God's plan from the beginning has been a global international salvation. I want all people, even the Gentiles, to glorify me for mercy. And the last proof text that Paul quotes is Isaiah 11.10. He says this, you should go to the ends of the earth. Why, Paul? Because Isaiah said, the root of Jesse will come. He will arise to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Christmas is so much about so much more than cookies and lights and presents and eggnog, though all of those are wonderful gifts. Christmas is about missions. And Isaiah 11 climaxes with the promise that the nations will worship the child in the manger. So therefore, go to the nations. Having come to Bethlehem and seen, go to the nations and tell. Because the promises that they will come provide the reason that you should go. Isaiah 7, 9, and 11 are news of joy for all the people. Oh, have you tried to tell anyone about Jesus during Christmas? Don't you see how much he loves them? He's a signal for the nations. He was born as an infant, as a branch. Who are you going to tell? Why haven't you told? Don't you see how much he loves the nations? Number two, will you go to the nations so that the Gentiles will glorify God for his mercy? I'm not even talking about going across the street. That's not missions. Who will go to the nations so that You could be a part in God's sovereignty of this promise coming to pass. This promise that they will come to him is the reason you should go to him. We all have one life. Spend your life for this kind of king. Number three, do you love this king? We can spend all Christmas talking about a king we don't even know. Many kings send their people to die for them. But Jesus is the one king who died to make you his treasure. Don't you see how much he loves you? Don't you see how much he loves you? Lo, how a rose air blooming from tender stem had sprung of Jesse's lineage coming, a 
as men of old has sung. Isaiah, twas foretold it, this rose I have in mind. With Mary we behold it, the virgin mother kind. True man, yet very God, from sin and death he saves us and lightens every load. O Savior, child of Mary, who felt our human woe. O Savior, King of glory, who does our weakness know. Bring us at length, we pray, to the bright courts of heaven and to the endless day.